You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you on a very special episode of the broadcast right here on Pacific Radio's KPFK, which happens to be on Fun Drive this week. But we are doing a special podcast episode nonetheless for KPFK.org, for the Stitcher app, for the TuneIn app, for the Progressive Voices channel, for Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, and of course iTunes, all of our affiliates, because it is a very special uh, month. It is 10 years since we broke the story at bradblog.com about Clint Curtis, whistleblower who was at the time a software programmer from Oviedo, Florida, who claimed to have been asked by a sitting Republican congressman by the name of Tom Feeney to create vote-rigging software for touchscreen voting machines. I am, since I forgot to mention it, Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative citizen journalist, blogger, troublemaker, and muckraker from bradblog.com. Clint Curtis, as I said, uh, he claims that uh, at the time when he was working at a company named Yang Enterprises, Inc., they had a lot of uh, contracts with the state. Uh, He claims at the time Feeney who was a very powerful Republican in the state of Florida. He was the Speaker of the Florida House. He was also the registered lobbyist at the same time uh, for this company, Yang Enterprises, which had all of these contracts with the state. Kind of a conflict of interest, it seems. Nonetheless, Clint Curtis filed a sworn affidavit, gave sworn testimony to the U.S. House Judiciary Committee at the time. We will play a little bit of that testimony in a bit. Uh, It was just remarkable, actually. When we broke the story at Bradblog in December of 2004, it actually took down the website entirely. You couldn't access it. There was so much traffic. It was an incredible moment because it was after the uh, contested election between John Kerry and George Bush, but before that election had actually been certified by the Electoral College. It was also a different time in this country when uh, it was even arguably even more partisan, at least around presidential elections, uh, than it is now. Uh, It was a very scary moment, frankly. It was scary to me. Uh, I was awake for three entire days before breaking this story at Bradblog as I was working on it. I was just so creeped out by it all. Um, But it was an amazing story eventually made into a documentary film called Murder, Spies, and Voting Lies, The Clint Curtis Story, a film by Patty Sheriff that actually uh, won an award uh, at the uh, New Jersey Film Festival a few years ago. And people still come by Bradblog uh, today uh, to look into this story, this amazing story, the photographs that go with it. We'll get to all of that in a bit. That's the murder part of Murder, Spies, and Voting Lies. 
To find out what this story is all about 10 years later, I'm happy to welcome Clint Curtis. Welcome back, sir, to the broadcast. Glad to be here. Great to have you here 10 years later. I can't believe it's actually been uh, 10 years uh, I, I want to play uh, for folks the uh, the testimony, the remarkable testimony that you gave to House Judiciary Democrats in uh, December of 2004. But before I do, what was it? What was the defining moment back in uh, back in 2004 after the election between John Kerry and George Bush? What was the defining moment that's made you say, I need to let people know about this. I need to make some noise. I need to go public with this. Uh, basically, the fact that everything, all of the totals were coming up exactly the 49-51 split that I'd written into the program, so it didn't even look like they'd taken the time to alter my code, and they were just whipping the election wherever they wanted to. Just It was just kind of blatant. Now, you don't think that they were actually using your code, do you? In other words, were they using your code or were they just using your uh, general idea as you saw it at the time for, for how to flip an election using electronic voting systems? There's no way to know what they use, honestly, but they were using the same 4951 type of procedure that I had put into my code. And it was just obvious that all of these states were coming up 49-51, 49-51 all across the board, you know, with minor variations in points, but that would always happen depending on when the flip occurred. So, you know, it was kind of obvious to me that there was something afoot. Now, you were a Republican at the time, as I recall. Uh, I know that changed later because of all of this that happened. Uh, but before I play this, uh, this remarkable testimony that you gave uh, back on December 13, 2004, uh, what did it feel like walking into a, a hearing room, House Judiciary Democrats, uh, as a Republican walking into this particular uh lion's den, as it were. <laughs> well, I didn't really see it that way. I was just going to uh, tell my story. I wasn't highly political anyway. You know, I was a mm -hmm. Republican because my parents were Republican. You know, you kind of just, okay, that's what I'll be. And back during the time I became a Republican, the Republicans were much closer. The Republicans of the Democratic Party were much closer. So there wasn't this crazed, racist, we hate Obama thing going on. It was kind of everybody was the same. One was maybe a little more cautious than the other. That sort of thing. There wasn't this massive difference that there is now. Okay, let me play uh, a shortened version of, of some of your testimony. This was a House U.S. House Judiciary Committee field hearing back in Columbus, Ohio. December 13, 2004, the Brad blog had just broken this story, had just uh, posted your affidavit online just days earlier, uh, and the election had yet to be certified by the Electoral College in Washington, D.C. So this was a rather extraordinary moment as Democrats were certain that something had gone wrong uh, on election night in Ohio and perhaps elsewhere. And here was a bit of Clint Kirk Curtis's testimony before the House Judiciary Democrats, no Republicans showed up, House Judiciary Democrats in Columbus, Ohio, December 13, 2004. Mr. Curtis, would you please state your full name for the record? My uh, name is Clinton Eugene Curtis. And where do you reside? Tallahassee, Florida. 
And what is your profession? I'm a computer programmer. Mr. Curtis, are there programs that can be used to secretly fix elections? Yes. How do you know that to be the case? Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for President Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I work for in Oviedo, Florida that did just that. And when you say did, did just that, it would rig an election? It would flip the vote 51-49 to whoever you wanted it to go to and whichever race you wanted to win. And would that program that you designed be something that elections officials that might be on county boards of elections could detect? They'd never see it. Would you answer that question once again? They would never see it. So how would such a, such a program, a secret program that uh, fixes the election, how could it be detected? You would have to view it either in the source code or you'd have to have a receipt and then count the hard paper against the actual vote total. Other than that, you won't see it. All right, Mr. Curtis, uh, if you had been asked, you or others with your professional expertise had been asked to design a protective program to, that would protect the Ohio elections from against, against such software to fix the election, could you have done so? If we've been asked to make a program that could fix the election, sure, anybody can do it. No, could you have designed a program or to a procedure or a protocol that would have protected Ohio against this kind of rigging? No, you have to look at the source code. You have to get probably programmers from both or all parties to look at the source code and determine if there's anything in there that shouldn't be there. I mean, it's a simple program. You're adding one to a person's total. It's 100 lines of code tops. There's all right, if, uh, and your testimony is under oath. Yes, sir. And the testimony you've given is true. Yes, sir. Thank you. Waters and I have the same question. Come back to the podium. Who did you say you were asked to prepare? I was asked by Tom Feeney. He's now a congressman. At that time, he was uh, Speaker of the House of Florida, Yang Enterprises, which was the company I worked for, lobbyist, and their corporate attorney. He wore a lot of hats. And at the time, he was the Speaker of the House of Florida. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay, thank you. Congressman, you say he was the, the lobbyist for the voting machine company at the same time he was Speaker of the House? I don't know what the voting machine company is. He was a lobbyist for Yang Enterprises. We had NASA contracts. And, and Yang Enterprises did what? Computers? Computers. Okay, and he was your lobbyist? Your he company was the lobbyist. lobbyist for that company, yeah. And he asked you to design a, to see, to design a code to rig and election? Yes. While he was Speaker of the Florida House? Yes. This was during or previous to the 2000 election? Yes, October, end of September. And did he ever express why he wanted a code to rigging election? No, I immediately assumed that they were trying to keep you guys from cheating them. So, <laughs> so I wrote up the documentation of what you would look for in the source code, how you would make sure that you didn't get, you know, taken advantage of, make sure that all voting machines had receipts because that way you could back count the ones that looked a little funny. And I handed it a paper receipt. You mean a paper trail? Yes, paper trail. And I handed that in to Mrs. Yang and said, here's your report, here's your program. And she said, you don't understand, we need to hide the fraud in the source. 
in the source code. I defer not reveal the fraud. Not reveal the fraud because it's needed to, con to control the vote in South Florida, was what she said. Oh, That's what she said. That's to your knowledge, to your knowledge, was this used? I have no idea. I, I was ready to leave. <laughs> and I'm just tired and left to come to you. Can I one further question? Assuming for the moment that such software, that's what you call it, such software to, to rig a vote was used in one or more machines in Ohio or in Florida, could you today detect that if you looked at the source code? If you could get the machines and they have not been patched yet, I mean, once they get in and touch them, anything can happen. You can also set timers to do that, but then you see the timers. Then you'd have to take those machines, decompile them, which I couldn't do, but possibly a Microsoft, an MIT, something could do. You might, you might be able to see it. You might. Not depends on how good they are at destroying what they had. Destroying what they had by tampering the machine afterwards, or by programming a destroyed uh, instruction in the first place. Right, because since you didn't know either or both, either or both, you you didn't actually see what's in there, so you don't know if the code is running in a single executable or running in various modules. If it's running modules, you can make the code actually eat itself. Let me ask you one further question. We, I have heard, I've been told that people who assume that. Lots of the election results, or that a large fraction of the election results in the state may have been affected by uh, deliberate fraud in the computer, are, are paranoid because they, in order to do that, you have to have access to thousands of machines and that, that would be readily detectable. To what extent is that true? It depends on the technology you use. If you did a central tabulation machine that fed in all you have to do is set a flag. You set a flag, the central, tabula tab central tabulation machine would then flip your vote. So if you, so one person putting in bad code in a central tabulation machine could affect thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of votes. Right. And if you had a recount, uh, and there were no, like, no paper trail, would that be, as soon as that, that had happened, would that be revealable by seeing a discrepancy between what the tabulator, the central tabulator showed, and what the individual machines, which had not been tampered with, showed? Not if I wrote it. Why not? In other words, in other words, I would make a match. You could you could work back from the tabulator to the individual machines, so the tabulator would tell the machines to switch their results. Yes, it talks both ways. So in other words, there is absolutely no assurance whatsoever and anything with regard to these machines? Absolutely none, unless you look at the source code and make sure it's safe before it goes in. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman Matters. Uh, I know that Congresswoman Waters has a question, then Senator Miller, and then Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs-Jones. Senator Miller. Thank you, Madam Chair. Sir, I suspect people will attack you in terms of your credibility. Could you restate once again your, your credentials? Uh, I'm a programmer. I worked for NASA, worked for ExxonMobil, worked for um, Florida Department of Transportation, and other elements of my story, because this company, well, let's get into it, why not? <laughs> this company also, they have NASA contracts, and they were basically downloading tons of information, I mean gigabytes worth, and handing off to this little Chinese guy named Henry Nee, and it didn't seem right. And you know, he was hacking things, and I wrote a program for DOT that allowed contractors to send their information into DOT. 
and he was kind of the quality assurance guy for software. He put a wiretapping module in the program that went out to the contractor so that it actually sent everything they sent back to Yang. So I reported all this, and just last March, I think, he was arrested for attempting to send anti-tank missile chips to the capital of communist China. So if that's correct, this is such a small thing. <laughs> Of course, I think he only got a $100 fine. And no time. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we are now going to... Uh... Once again, that was Clint Curtis speaking to U.S. House Judiciary Democrats on December 13, 2004, in Columbus, Ohio, after the uh, reported election of George W. Bush... Uh, the re-election, if you will, and yet before the Electoral College had met to certify that race. Uh, amazing testimony, Clint. What was uh, what was your thought as you were giving that? What were you thinking when you were giving this information to those Democrats and, and folks out there were applauding you uh, like that? I was wondering if it would actually make a difference or if it was another one of those things that would just uh, you know get kicked around and politicized and then everyone would forget it. Were you surprised at the uh, at the amount of attention that it did get? Did it get more attention or less attention than you thought it might? I thought it got less. I thought that they should have really tried to fix the issue and made it a point to focus on that. And that really didn't happen like I expected it to. Uh, some states tried to make changes that nothing happened on the federal level to actually get rid of these machines or to make them so that they could be verified. You know, I basically laid out exactly what they needed to do to make sure they could verify these machines. And, you know, many of the states run by Republicans actually took what I said and made it so that you couldn't verify them. They actually wrote the laws like, well, we know this is going on, and we'll just make the laws so you can't possibly verify them. Let's take Florida. We had a case where I said, you must have paper, and then you can validate the paper against whatever the machine toll is. And in Florida, they have it so that you are not allowed. It is illegal to actually count the paper to verify that the machine counted correctly. The machine becomes the absolute correct total, regardless if you have a stack of actual ballots that say the machine toll is wrong. Well, you know, to be fair, Clint, to you, uh, a lot of states, you were talking about touchscreen voting systems at the time, and uh, a, a lot of states at this point uh, have gotten rid of those touchscreen voting systems, including Florida. Uh, they, they didn't listen to you back in, uh, in 2004, but, you know, once they got to, I think it was 2006, and 18,000 votes simply disappeared on one of these touchscreen machines, uh, they did. Charlie Crist, uh, who was governor, at the time ended up getting rid of those in the state of Florida. Well, they got rid of them, but they replaced them with the scanners, which have the same possibility of having a vote-flipping issue inside. And by then saying we're going to scan all of our ballots, mm -hmm. but then we're going to ignore the ballot and take the scanned number just doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. And of course, that's one of the things I've been trying to say on this program and on bradblog.com for years and years, as I know you have. Uh, Clint, Clint Curtis, I remember being up 
awake, literally awake, for three nights in a row back uh, before I broke your story at Brad Blog, thinking that, uh, you know, this is impossible. I can't possibly stay up for three nights in a row. Why am I not going to sleep? Uh, and then the story broke. Uh, and as you were in uh, D.C. at the time, I think meeting with folks from the House Judiciary Committee, I recall. Uh, well, tell us what happened next to your dog, Champ, on the day that we broke the story at Bradblog.com. On the day that I actually handed it in and then you pushed all the information out, the, the dog was shot. Just shot in the back and killed a German Shepherd, my puppy. I remember when that happened. I remember breaking down at the time, maybe because I had been so exhausted from uh, being up three nights. But I, I kind of felt like that was my fault somehow. I know that it wasn't. Uh, but did did you ever get uh, any information, any clues about who did that? What happened? Did you ever hear? Uh, did the police ever do an investigation? No, I mean, there's not much they can do. You know, it's a dog. They're not going to spend a lot of time on it. And they just let it go. And to be clear, but what else could they do? I mean, they're not going to do a, a full-on murder investigation over someone shooting the dog, which is probably why someone shot the dog to get their point across rather than, you know, do things that may get more attention. Are you convinced that uh, these two issues were related, or, or do you think it was just a, a, a coincidence that somehow the dog got shot on the very day that you released your affidavit uh, publicly? I lived out in the woods, surrounded by other woods, and it's really unlikely that anyone, in fact, no one was ever there before or after, because all of these areas are fenced off, you know, with fences, and, you know, it's not like a hunting area that someone's next to, so someone would have had to jump the fence of either my property or the property next to it or the property next to it or all of them to actually get to an area to where, you know, the dog could be shot. And it looked like a small caliber you wouldn't be hunting with anyway. So, you know. And there is more death involved in this story. We'll get to that in a second. I, I want to be clear here because I took a lot of hell at the time uh, when people said, oh, he made up this dog story. Uh, I had the report uh, th that was given to the police, and people wanted me to release that report. I didn't want to release the report at the time, Clint, because I felt like it might have put you in danger, even if I had redacted information from it, just putting out what police department this was, just to give an, uh, an idea uh, you know where you live, that's how tense I thought this moment was, uh, you know, particularly as Bush had not even been uh, uh, officially reelected yet by the Electoral uh, uh, College. It was a really scary time, at least for me. Did you ever uh, share any of those uh, fears? Were you ever frightened uh, about any of this? A little bit. Um, you know, it got a little tense. I was much less frightened once it went public mm -hmm. than prior to that. Because once it goes public, if, you know, your star witness ends up dead, then there's going to be an issue. Prior to that, them knowing that I knew and them knowing that I could tell at any time seemed to me like it would make me much more of a target than after, you know, it was common knowledge. 
Tom Feeney, the congressman from Florida at the time. Now, he had uh, claimed that he had no recollection of meeting with you, Clint Curtis, that he could not have engaged in such a scheme because Palm Beach County uh, back at the time did not even consider obtaining touchscreen machines until after the 2000 election. Uh, that turns out to be not entirely true, as we would learn some years later from a, a documentary done by Dan Rather called The Trouble with Touchscreens, in which he reported on, I believe it was seven different whistleblowers from the Sequoia Voting Machine Company. These were the guys who made the, uh, the paper ballots that were used in 2000, that, where the chads were falling off, that ended up leading to the, uh, to the 2000 uh, uh, fight over, uh, over the presidential election. But what we know from 2000 is that, in fact, Riverside County out here in California was already using touchscreen voting systems made by the Sequoia Voting System Company. Uh, so if anybody had an interest in getting those electronic voting systems into the polls, it would be Sequoia. And back in 2000, back when Tom Feeney was talking to you about creating vote-flipping software on a touchscreen machine. Uh, yeah, in fact, it does seem that people were talking about uh, exactly that back before the 2000 election, even though that was used to, uh, to claim you were crazy and a conspiracy theorist. Nobody was interested in touchscreen machines at the time. It actually occurred like in October or November you know, when they asked me to do this. Mm -hmm. So to actually say that it would have been used in the 2000 election mm -hmm. is just a smokescreen anyway, because obviously if you're writing your prototype in October, you're not going to roll it out for a November election. It would be for the 2002 election, the 2004 election. It would be after the 2000 election. Exactly. So Although... I never understood how they thought that that was even a legitimate argument, but a lot of Republican arguments are not that legitimate. So... <laughs> It is what it is. Speaking of Republican arguments being legitimate, uh, you ran for Congress uh, against Tom Feeney as a Democrat. We saw that at the end of uh, the film, the documentary film Murder, Spies and Voting Lies, the Clint Curtis story. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with Clint Curtis and find out if, in fact, he was able to remove Tom Feeney from office. Ten years later, the Clint Curtis story Right here on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. Crazy indeed. Welcome back to this special edition of the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with Clint Curtis, formerly a computer software programmer from Oviedo, Florida, who told me back in 2004 that he was asked by then-Republican Congressman Tom Feeney to create vote-rigging software 
prior to the 2000 election. He filed a sworn affidavit at the time. He gave sworn testimony to the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. And then a couple years later, with little action taken, he decided to run against the very powerful Congressman Tom Feeney. It has now been 10 years since we originally broke this story at bradblog.com, so I thought it would be a good time uh, to check back in with whistleblower Clint Curtis and see where things now stand, see where he is, and see how all the players here have uh, evolved over these 10 years. If you want any specific details on any part of this story, you can go to bradblog.com slash Curtis and check out our uh, 10 years of reporting on this amazing story. Okay, Clint, at the end of the uh, documentary film Murder, Spies, and Voting Lies, we find that you have uh, decided to become a Democrat in order to run against Tom Feeney himself uh, uh, for Congress. Uh, and, and I think that that was the theme song, that, that uh, CeeLo uh, crazy music. He called you crazy. Uh, did he use that or did you use that music in your campaign? No, he used that. He, uh, his whole uh, thing is that everything that anyone is saying bad about him, including the fact that he's, uh, you know, involved with Abramhoff and all that, that's just all crazy. People are making it up, and it just isn't real. So that was that was his way of attempting to discredit me. Well, that was one of the ways. Uh, he also created a website, I think it was called crazyclintcurtis.com, where he photoshopped a, uh, uh, a tinfoil hat on your head. But I think the funniest part, Clint, uh, of, of, of that campaign, he actually sent out mailers with a photoshopped photo of you in a Hugh Hefner robe. It was sort of your head on top of Hugh Hefner's body. Uh, it cited my story about you uh, and the horrible death of Raymond Lemmy. Uh, we'll get into who he was in a second, but I had written a story uh, about Raymond Lemmy for Hustler magazine, so it actually had nothing to do with Playboy, but somehow Feeney was trying to suggest that you and Hustler publisher Larry Flint were working together or were in cahoots or that he was endorsing you or something like that. And then uh, Feeney supporters complained because they got that mailer and uh, thought that Feeney was sending pornography uh, out them and their, their children were getting it out of the mailbox. I, haven't, I don't remember actually seeing this liar, but I heard a lot about it and people were doing a lot of complaining to him because he, uh, he had like Hustler magazine... Has yes. a picture on there or something. Yes. I mean, I don't think there was any pornography on it. I think it was just Hustler magazine, and then it had you know me photoshopped in as something else and all kinds of things. So yeah, it didn't go over well with people. No, it didn't go over well. It made it onto the news. People were actually complaining about Tom Feeney. Uh, it seems Tom Feeney can't really do anything right. Uh, in in September of 2006, he was named one of uh, 20 most corrupt members of Congress, and it had to do with, uh, as as you uh, mentioned, his meeting with Abramoff. Actually, his trip to Scotland with Abramoff. Uh, Jack Abramoff, the the uh, super uh, Republican lobbyist uh, who ended up going to jail. Uh, we've had him on this show, actually, since he's come out of jail. But Feeney flew uh, on this free junket to Scotland with Abramoff. It dogged him for years, and eventually he actually had a, a campaign commercial that came out and apologized for his meeting with Tom Feeney. It's a 30-second spot. Here's that ad. 
Five years ago, when I was first elected to Congress, I was invited on a trip to Scotland. I found out later it was paid for by a corrupt lobbyist. It was a rookie mistake, and I did everything I could to make it right. I reported it to the Ethics Committee, and I paid the money back. I embarrassed myself, embarrassed you, and for that, I'm very sorry. I'm Tom Feeney, and I approve this message because public service is about being honest, even when you make a mistake. Public service is about being honest, even when you make a mistake. That was Tom Feeney's commercial. It didn't do well for him, uh, did it? Uh, but you were unable to beat, to beat Tom Feeney. Tell us what happened. Well, um, we were we ran our campaign. He ran his, and he kept getting more frantic every time because you know he couldn't debate us because he would have to face accusations that he couldn't defend. You know, I mean, people here knew he was a crook, so they kind of winked and took it because there was a higher Republican base than there was a Democratic base in that particular district. So they, they kind of accepted it, even though they knew that he was not, you know, not a choir boy. As it got worse and worse, it became less and less acceptable to him. So as he continued to try and deny it and refuse to debate, you know, all the, all the things that made him look like he's running scared, then we got closer and closer. We actually polled, I think it was two weeks before the election, 1% away, you know, one way or the other. So there was no way it was too close to call. It showed him 1% ahead, but there was a four-point margin of error, so we were right on his tail. Mm-hmm. In the final election, however, in the, in the actual ballots, the paper ballots that we could count, because you have to remember the machines that I had just testified were fraudulent, were being used in my district. The touchscreen machines. The touchscreen machines, also the tabulators. So we won on the paper ballots. We actually beat him. But on the machines, the numbers were heavily skewed to him, and so we lost by you know, 15 points or something. Outside of the margin of error for the polling before, mm-hmm. outside of the margin of error for the exit polling. So now you're, you're having to run an election on machines that you have testified are 100% unverifiable. Now, after the campaign, you were not uh, successful, Clint Curtis, in, in uh, unseating Tom Feeney back in 2006. Uh, he was eventually unseated in 2008 by another Democrat, Suzanne Cosmas, I think was her name. Uh, did, did, but did you ever hear from Feeney beyond his campaign calling you crazy? Did, was there ever any debates? Was there ever any contact with him? Has there ever been any contact since then, even since he's, uh, since he's left Congress? No, nothing. Nothing. He, well, it, it doesn't pay him to have a contact. It doesn't pay him to continue. You know, he's now in Tallahassee lobbying for some business group, which is kind of where he belongs anyway. <laughs> That's well, kind of what he was doing as a congressman. He was, he was basically a hired lobbyist for these big companies, but he had a vote. Now he doesn't have a vote. He just gets to go and chat to the other people behind the screen. Indeed. Why they would hire someone with that type of corruption, maybe it doesn't matter in the Republican Party. Uh, well, indeed, he is the uh, now... Tom Feeney is now the president and CEO of the most corporately named outfit I've ever heard of. He's the CEO of Associated Industries of Florida. 
which describes themselves as the voice of Florida business since 1926. And of course, almost all of their money goes to uh, goes to Republicans. That's Tom Feeney uh, still pretty much still doing what he what he's always been doing, which is uh, working for Republican corporations down in Florida. Um, Now, have you ever heard from uh, Mrs. Yang or Yang Enterprises? And just to very quickly fill people in on this part of the story, this was the company that you were working for, that Tom Feeney was also working for back in 2000, when Tom Feeney asked you to create a vote rigging software prototype. Uh, at the time, after you uh, came out with your claims, uh, f- we broke the story at bradblog.com. You filed your affidavit. Uh, they said it was uh, sour grapes that you had uh, about working there uh, when, in fact, we were able to publish a going away card where Mrs. Yang said, Clint, you are welcome back anytime. Uh, have you ever talked to Mrs. Uh, Yang since then or anyone else uh, at Yang Enterprises? Uh, not really. We filed a QTAM action, but they, Yang Enterprises has a lot of money. And if you hire the right attorneys, you can basically paper the other people to death, mm-hmm. which essentially they did. So we're not friends. I don't keep in a touch. One of their uh, employees, a guy by the name of Henry Nee, he had uh, ultimately been arrested for spying for, for China? Yes. He, uh, I reported it to NASA, the fact that you know, they had downloaded all of this information, because there were other things going on that, the, you know, the company was just a little, little cock. I went out of there. You know, they had this association with Feeney, mm-hmm. which, you know, was just slimy. But when you were around him, you felt slimy. You know, there are people that <laughs> give that slime feel. He's one of those people. And um, but they also had this this guy, which is a nice. He was a nice guy. He's a little Chinese guy, and um, you know, very quiet, very calm, very bright, very bright, computer wise and such. Mm-hmm. And he was in charge of basically quality control. So every program we went out, he would be able to check it and all that sort of thing. This is Yang. It's Chinese. The company's Chinese. You expect that. A lot of the people there are going to be Chinese. Right. But then they were downloading all this stuff from NASA and all this, and I reported it. Probably a year later, he was actually arrested for sending Hellfire missile chip technology to China. So they they caught him. I imagine they were watching him. Yeah, and as I recall, he got off with about a hundred dollar fine. He got off with a hundred dollar fine and no time served which is kind of odd in a spying case, you know, unless he was cooperative. <laughs> so it's hard to say. And unless you have friends in high places, and we should remind listeners that uh, Tom Feeney uh, w- was very close friends with the Bushes, with the Bush brothers. Uh, he-, he ran as uh, Jeb Bush's lieutenant governor back in 1994 when Jeb Bush originally ran for governor in the state of Florida. He lost that year, so uh, Tom Feeney was no help to him at that point, but he was very close to the Bushes down in Florida. And uh, nobody else, as far as I know, from Yang Enterprise was ever arrested, even though you said that Mrs. Yang admitted to you that her brother was also a spy for China? He had been deported for that, supposedly, according to her. He'd been deported for that, and she kept sending packages back and forth. And, you know, once I, one time I questioned her because she had all this, uh, all these government contracts. And it's like, 
you have all these government contracts, including NASA, and this was back when NASA was, you know, really something and open, mm-hmm. not like it is today, but um, you're sending all these packages back and forth to a fellow you said got deported. Is that a good idea? <laughs> and after that, she seemed a little different, you know, and she went out of her way to try and show me what benign thing she was sending. Like, I really cared, you know? Yeah. You know, we're sending this video game. You want to see the video game? No. <laughs> I don't really want to see the video game, you know? So she was she was basically going out of her way to show you how, oh, look, we're sending stuff to, to China, but it's totally nothing to worry about, just some video games, uh, nothing to see here, no Hellfire missile chips or anything else. I'm speaking with Clint Curtis, a whistleblower, formerly a computer programmer who claims uh, to have created a vote-rigging software prototype for a Republican congressman at the time, uh, Tom Feeney, who is no longer a Republican congressman, I'm happy to say. Um, Okay, the uh, creepiest part of the story, Clint Curtis, is the story of Raymond Lemmy. He was the uh, inspector general in the state of Florida. You had gone to him with your concerns about all of this. Tell us what happened after he looked into the the material you gave him concerning Tom Feeney and and vote-rigging software and everything else. Well, I told him about the vote rigging software. I told him about the spying because there was a particular incident that I thought they should be interested in. Uh, this, I wrote programs for the state of Florida, which allowed their contractors to basically submit all of their information encrypted up to Tallahassee via the Internet. Today, that's pretty common. Back mm-hmm. then, it was a little rare. So I wrote that. So we'd have all the security in order for them to send it. Mm-hmm. Then I went on a visit to a contractor who was having trouble getting his stuff to go up because it was going really slow. And while checking it and doing some tests, I found out that not only was it submitting this secured information to DOT, it was submitting the information with the encryption taken off to Yang server. So basically they had a wiretapping program where they were taking every bit of the contractor information and shipping it to Yang. So they were basically tapping in to uh, their own software and actually pulling out uh, secrets and shipping it back to the company. Yes. And you reported this to uh, Raymond Lemmy, who was the inspector general at the Department of Transportation in Florida at the time. Uh, What happened thereafter? When did you uh, see Raymond Lemmy? Uh, When was the last time you saw Raymond Lemmy? Let me put it that way. Well, once I reported on the issues with DOT, then both myself and all the other people that had any information regarding, you know, what had been going on, were fired. And to be clear, this was, uh, you were fired from the Florida Department of Transportation. This was after you had left Yang Enterprises on your own accord because you didn't like uh, everything that was going on there. Uh, the, 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 the spying uh, for China, allegedly, the request to create vote-rigging software. So you left Yang, you ended up working at the Department of uh, Transportation. That's where you got fired from after you brought all of this up to Raymond Lemmy, the inspector general uh, at the DOT. And because once 
Yang found out that I was working at a place where I could basically see what they were doing mm -hmm. and would understand it, they went crazy <laughs> trying to get me to get out of there. They offered me a million dollars to come back. And you didn't take it? No. Feeney's much too slimy for a million dollar job. You know? So tell me the last time you saw Raymond Lemmy. Raymond Lemmy came in. I was now, I couldn't get a jobs programmer, so I was stocking shelves at the dollar store. And uh, Raymond Lemmy would come in and ask me continuing questions about the gangs and the boat software and, you know, the uh, everything going on with uh, the illegal alien that was there working on their software and things like that. And so he would come in and come back, you know, I'd tell him what I, what I knew and send him on his way. The last time I saw him, he came in and he said that he had, he had tracked the problem or the issue all the way to the top. I don't know what that was because, you know, it was kind of that cop exchange mm -hmm. where he asks the questions, you give him an answer, he really gives you nothing back. Mm -hmm. So he tracked it all the way to the top and that if I just paid attention a couple days, he was going to blow it wide open and I would be real pleased with the result. A couple days later, he was found dead in Georgia at it was supposedly a suicide. Yeah. So I tended to have my doubts. That was at the uh, uh, Nights Inn, I think it was, a motel in Valdosta, Georgia. That part of the story, Clint, uh, 10 years ago when I broke the, uh, the story, I didn't even spend much time on that because it, A, kind of creeped me out, uh, and, and, and B, it, it seemed like, uh, oh, it was just one of these crazy stories that we had heard from the Clinton era where, you know, enemies of Bill Clinton end up dead and so forth. So I didn't even focus on that part of the story. Uh, and, and, and then, uh, I think it was a month or so later, uh, the photographs from this scene where Ray, Ray Lemmy had supposedly committed suicide, those photographs were never available because the Valdosta police at the time said that the flash memory card on their camera had failed. So there was no photographs of what actually happened in that uh, Valdosta, Georgia motel room. And then they said, well, due to interest on the Internet... We've been able to get the photographs off that camera after all, and they published these photographs, these uh, supposedly suicide photographs of Raymond Lemmy in this hotel. We published them at bradblog.com. They're horrible, horrible to look at. But one thing we found is that uh, the details in the photographs did not match the details in the Valdosta police report. Surprising, huh? Well, upsetting, at least at the time, uh, they, the Valdosta Police Department uh, said that they would let me speak to the woman who made the uh, uh, the initial uh, police report. They never did. They uh, they said that they weren't stonewalling me. And they kept saying that as if they were, well, you know, stonewalling me. Uh, so I never got to talk to telling you a long time they're not stonewalling you they're stonewalling you. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, so i never got information uh, about this woman who apparently no longer works uh, at the valdosta uh, police department but a remarkable uh, story incredibly chilling um it's told now in this documentary film uh murder spies and voting lies the clint curtis story uh you can you can purchase the uh, documentary you can and should purchase it at VotingLies.com, uh, an award-winning documentary by filmmaker Patty Sheriff. I highly recommend it. And now, just to catch up before I let you go, Clint, 10 years later, 
since that story broke, and we've been reporting on it still uh, 10 years later at bradblog.com, uh, where are you now? What are you doing? Are you still a computer programmer? Are you still making life difficult for Republican congressmen? <laughs> well, I am not still a programmer. As I said, if you, uh, if you rat out these people, whether you're right or wrong, it's not a good career move. You know, If you think you're going to be a whistleblower and save the world, probably not going to happen. If you think you're going to be a whistleblower and still have the same career, definitely not going to happen. So um, I went to law school, became a lawyer, and now I have a firm. We have offices in Orlando, New York, and the Dominican Republic because we do a lot of immigration law. Really? Oh, you're you're fighting against illegal, illegal immigration? I'm guessing as a, as a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're helping people become citizens. Wow. What I do mainly, my partner does that mostly. Uh, she speaks Spanish. And so mainly what I do is I do veterans, disability, and social security disability. Wow. Uh, imagine that. Ten years later, and you're probably still ticking off uh, a lot of Republicans uh, in fighting for uh, people to become citizens of this country. Clint Curtis, uh, whistleblower, former computer software programmer, former uh, candidate for the U.S. House. Uh, and now attorney in uh, Florida, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Clint, it's been an amazing ride over 10 years. Uh, and I should say, over those 10 years, I've always tried to catch you in a lie. I always wanted to expose you uh, for being the liar that Tom Feeney said you were. I have never been able to do that, not even once. That's a shame, because that would make a great page. A great web page? Yes. If, you could, you could, that, would, that would be as big of a story as the vote reading was in the first place. Okay, well, maybe in another 10 years, uh, you'll, you'll reveal that it was all a lie, and I will have another amazing <laughs> story at Brad Blog. I think more and more when, you know, these Republicans get arrested, because one of the things that I said was about vote suppression, because Feeney wasn't just on vote flipping. He was talking about vote suppression of black voters. And, of course, he denied it, but there was a fellow that was the head of the Republican Party in Florida that just got convicted and mm -hmm. testified that that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. He had actually said exactly what you had reported Feeney told you 10 years ago that the uh, Republican Party in Florida was trying to do, have uh, cops at the polls to intimidate people and uh, try to suppress the black vote. So, like I said... I try to catch you in a lie. I have so far been completely unable to do so, uh, but I'm going to keep trying. Clint Curtis, always great to talk to you. Ten years later, uh, if folks want more information on this story, you can check out that film, VotingLies.com, or go back to the source. We've got the affidavit, and we've got ten years of reporting at Bradblog.com slash Clint Curtis. Great talking to you, Clint. Good talking to you, sir. Okay, we're running late, so in the few minutes we have left, Desi Doyen joins me for our latest Green News Report. My house is broken. My house is broken. Super Typhoon Hagupit launches 2014 into the record books. We've got to make sure that it's not adding to the problem of 
carbon and climate change. Doesn't look good for the Keystone XL pipeline. Plus, many developing countries say they can't do much because their priority is getting their people out of poverty, not limiting greenhouse gases. Rich versus poor. Deep divisions stall UN climate talks. All of those deep divisions and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Let's talk about the Keystone XL pipeline, all right? We don't build it down to Louisiana. We take it over the Canadian border. We build that big pipe all the way, all the way over the Mexican border. We leave the other end of it open with a sign that says Mucho Jobzo. And the people over the border take the thing all the way up and they end up in Canada. And the Canadians are too polite to kick them out. And there's your immigration policy. Sounds like a great idea. That, that sounds like a ridiculous idea. This is your Green News Report. But that's why you're where you are and I'm where I am. Okay, Desi Doyen, climate change deniers like to point to the fact that we haven't had any huge hurricanes here in the U.S. of late. But last year around this time, we had a super typhoon in the Philippines. And this year, we had yet another super typhoon in the Philippines. Yeah, and of course, deniers should remember that the U.S. is not the entire world. Oh, yeah. But we'll have more on that in a moment. First, it's not looking good for the Keystone XL pipeline. Essentially, there's Canadian oil. Mm -hmm passing through the United States to be sold on the world market. It's not going to push down gas prices here in the United States. It's good for Canada. It could create a couple of thousand jobs in the initial construction of the pipeline, but we've got to measure that against whether or not it is going to contribute to uh, an overall warming of the planet that it could be disastrous. That was President Obama on Comedy Central's Colbert Report, increasingly dismissive of the proposed tar sands pipeline from Canada, which is now on hold pending a court case in Nebraska and final approval by the Obama administration. However, congressional Republicans have vowed to force Obama to approve the pipeline next year, probably by attaching it to a must-pass government funding bill. Has America caught on to the fact that this is a scam, that it has nothing to do with jobs, oil prices, or anything else other than Republicans helping out uh, corporate Canadians? Polls show that a majority of Americans do approve of the pipeline, but maybe with President Obama talking about what it does and doesn't do, that will affect public opinion. Maybe that's why he was appearing on the Colbert Report, so that people would actually hear what he had to say. In the Pacific, another extremely powerful typhoon called Hagupit slammed into the Philippines over the weekend, less than a year after another record-breaking super typhoon, Haiyan, devastated the island archipelago. At least 27 people have been killed and thousands of homes destroyed. 5,000 people lost their lives in Haiyan last year, but advanced preparation, mass evacuations, and the luck of geography spared the country even worse devastation this year. Still, super typhoon Hagupit was an extremely powerful storm. It launched 2014 into second place for the highest number of extreme Category 5 storms on record, second only to the year 2005. This time last year, after the devastation of Super Typhoon Haiyan, the Philippines delegate at the United Nations Climate Treaty Talks, Yeb Sanyo, cried out for swift action on climate change. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. 
This year, deep divisions between rich and poor countries are still stalling progress at the treaty negotiations now underway in Lima, Peru. The ultimate goal is an international emissions treaty in Paris a year from now, with all nations participating. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry is personally attending this time in an unprecedented move at this stage to help break the logjam. Very basically, the rich countries want poor countries to commit to emissions cuts. But poor countries, with millions living in devastating poverty who did not cause the problem of global warming, say that rich countries should make deeper cuts and contribute billions in financing to help them adapt to impacts. And the rich countries have indeed now pledged $100 billion to help those poor countries sort of leapfrog over the development stage. Is that working? Is that going to be enough? It's not going to be enough. Australia has announced that it is not going to contribute to the Green Climate Fund. And unfortunately, scientists say the current pledges from countries will not be enough to stave off the worst impacts of global warming. Canada, have they contributed? They have, but not much. So the countries led by right-wingers like Australia and Canada aren't doing enough. That's right. So they're continuing their support for dangerous fossil fuels. They want to make lots of money off of it. Imagine that. And the U.S., of course, is also not doing enough. We lag behind Europe in cutting emissions because of the stranglehold that the fossil fuel industry has over our domestic politics. Imagine that. For much more on that story and the others we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider a donation to help sponsor the Green News Report. Find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and of course, to our guest, whistleblower Clint Curtis, 10 years later. After we broke that amazing story, once again, you can get more details in Patty Sheriff's award-winning documentary, VotingLies.com, or read the whole thing, affidavit, crime scene photos and all, at bradblog.com slash Clint Curtis. We'll talk to you soon. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog, and of course at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, world. Good night, world.